If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome back to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a guy who works in sports talks to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like that's just not sports. I'm your host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And welcome back to the latest edition a blast from the Just Not Sports past. That's right. Look, when you when you get the call back from Just Not Sports, it means you were the real deal. You were the real deal, Holyfield, and we wanted you back on. And so today, coming back for the second time, it's Chuck Klosterman. And I'm going to go right to where you're probably already at, which is, hey, look, Brad, this show talks to sports people about stuff away from sports. Is Chuck Klosterman really a sports person? And I say, I don't fucking know. <laughs> I'd ask him. <laughs> I'd just straight up ask him, are you are you part of the sports media? Because when you really think about it, no, right? I mean, he's a more of a cultural critic and he he and he gets pretty candid about it. Like, you know, he started in sports. He obviously became heralded for talking about rock, pop culture, writ large. That said, you know, I I think of Chuck, and I told him this. I, I said, I, I kind of think of you as Saturday Night Live cast member moved on to doing movies. I'm still going to associate you with sports. You're on Simmons' podcast all the time. You know, co-founder of Grantland, which now, by extension through The Ringer, has had you know a, a decade of relevance in the sports space. Someone who has written a lot about the sports world and a lot of meaningful pieces that got the world talking is Tom Brady cover piece a couple years ago with you know when the whole deflate thing was happening. I mean, got the entire sports world talking about it. I'll always think of Chuck as OG sports going back to page 2. Which is why when I see he's got a new book of fiction out, I was like, let's break down your book of fiction cuz you're part of like the expanded sports universe, right? And this is something you're doing that's not that. Let's let's go deep. And look, his new book Raising Captivity, unlike anything he's really written, before and I, I really enjoyed it. Like I wouldn't tell you if I didn't, just because he came on the show, I would be like passive aggressively polite about it. <laughs> but but I did really like it. It's a series of short stories. Uh, I I hate to even qualify them with a description because we get into it a little bit about how sometimes the media narrative around your book takes over. And this book was billed as Twilight Zoney, Black Mirror. It's very. It's, it's a grounded in the real world, but there's one thing that's always off. And I don't think that's necessarily the right description going into the book. I think you just go in, start reading a short story, see where it takes you, whatever. And I've listened to a lot of interviews with him when he was on his press tour. And I think a lot of them kind of shade toward, hey, here's a couple questions about the book. And then here's a bunch of questions about Trump and Twitter and blah, blah, blah. And what I wanted to do was zero in. Uh, and give Chuck the experience that we give sports media on our show. This is your thing. I want to talk to you about your thing. Let's geek out on it. So I'm going deep on the themes of the book, the process he gets to writing about unreliable narrators or conversations with certain power dynamics. And I think he, you know, we, we had a lot of fun breaking that down. And then, of course, it's Chuck Klosterman. 
our nation's foremost conversationalist, as I think he was once described or, or, or whatnot. I had to just get into, you know, can Shaq ever make the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? <laughs> um, you know, uh, why is Chuck good on podcasts as a guest? Uh, I've always ranked him sort of number two behind Jason Manzukis <laughs> in terms of someone who can show up on any show and just make it interesting. And look, I think he did that here. So it was really fun to you know bring Chuck back. If you remember last time he was on the show, we talked about Three Man Weave. That's his story on that really launched Grantland on the first day about a team in the middle of nowhere, uh, largely Native Americans, who had ended up winning a game playing three on five at the end of the game in basketball. And it was just kind of fun to come back with a whole new writing lens and just talk to Chuck about his process, what inspires him, the you know wh- how I felt about the stories. So yeah, I appreciated Chuck coming on, giving us a lot of time, and stick around afterwards. I will be back to distract you. Just the the whole format of my show is is really talking to people within sports, athletes, media, that kind of stuff about uh, you know what they love away from sports. So when I see you've got a book out of fiction, I'm thinking, hey, that's great. I got Chuck on. We'll talk about something you know different. Then it occurs to me like how far you've sort of transcended being part of the traditional sports media <laughs> anymore. And I wonder, do you even self-identify in that world at all? The way that like your audience may still associate you with because of, you know, your interest in sports, your writings, the shows you show up on. Uh, well, that's a, that's an interesting question. I, I guess I always assumed that I was not associated as part of that world. I, I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I, I, it, to me, it has always been that, okay, my, my, the, my very origin as a journalist was in sports. In college, right. I was a sports writer, then a sports editor. And then, you know, because I moved into covering culture and entertainment for a bunch of years, I felt like there was a degree of skepticism that I was writing about sports. And I think in a lot of ways that that still exists, like I don't think other sports writers would call me a sports writer. Interesting. Like I, I, I don't, I, I, in fact, I would be, I'd be shocked if they would. I mean, like, you know, I, um, I, I think that they see me as somebody who, um, sometimes writes about sports in the same ways that I sometimes write about, religion or something or <laughs> politics or whatever um because you know i never i skipped a big like middle part of what you usually do as a sports writer like i i didn't have a a, a job on a sports desk i never had a, a like a, a beat outside of college you know right. i was never a sports columnist except the thing i did for espn for a while although i sensed that they wanted me to do that almost consciously to sort of write beyond sports or whatever, you know? So <laughs> yeah. like a, that, that seems to be what a lot of times what people who want me to do sports writing are really asking, like, you know, um, Oh, the, uh, 
uh, you know, the anniversary of college football is coming up this year and the 100 year anniversary of the NFL. So ESPN and uh, the NFL Network are kind of doing these shows based around these anniversaries. And they both had me talk for these documentaries. <laughs> and, but it seems as though when I do that, they always want me to talk about anything except sports. But, you know, it's like, like I'm always a little excited because I'm like, oh, great. You know, I can talk about college football and like they want me to talk about the Buffalo the Colorado Buffaloes actually use as a mascot, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, that's what they're <laughs> yeah, exactly. always wanting me to do. Um, uh, but I, I guess I've kind of went this roundabout way of answering this question. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I suppose I don't, I would, I, I, I guess I'm like everybody else. Then I would say that I'm somebody who writes about sports, but I don't really think I'm a sports writer, you know, like I, it doesn't, doesn't seem like, I've done enough of it to qualify. It's yeah, it's interesting. I I, I guess I associate the, the greatest parallel I would draw would be like an SNL alum. You know, Will Ferrell can make thirty movies. He'll still people still talk about him freely on those lists. And I think I I, I would wouldn't you say now, you know, I, I, you've written so many high profile pieces, whether it's like you know the the you know the Brady profile or things like that, and and of course being a sort of a co founder around around Grantland, don't you think that's given you kind of that emeritus status within the sports world to a certain degree? Well, I, I would love for that to be the case. I'm glad <laughs> you said that, but what I would act, what I would actually say is that's what happened with me with rock criticism. Okay, I think yeah. I have that with rock criticism. I think that, that, uh, uh, even though I have probably written about sports as much as I have written about music over the last five to 10 years, close at least, you know, yeah. um, I think that I am still perceived as uh, predominantly a music writer and that that I could not write about music for the next 25 years. And if I died, my obit would probably call me a rock critic. I think that would happen. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that would happen. A cultural critic, or yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I get that. Well, I'm an army of well, one I mean, here. Cu- cultural, well, cultural critic makes sense. I mean, I guess that's yeah. what all these things encompass. But you know, I have it, it uh, because the first book was just about music. Because I worked at Spin for four years. I mean, that that's and I suppose to be honest, like a lot of of my kind of peers and like close friends are also you know rock critics still so um i it's uh i've been very lucky i guess the fact that we're even having this sort of weird (laughs) debate i mean like i i I think when the internet kind of came into dominance in the 2000s there was this belief that you had to specialize that you could not be considered a serious anything unless you had sort of one field which was uh, you know, your sole focus, sometimes even within sports, like it, it, there were, you know, there, you, you need to just focus on the SEC or something. Or you had to just focus on, um, you know, like a, the Premier League or whatever. But I'm I'm really a generalist. I guess I got in before this happened <laughs> and, and I've 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 never been sort of forced um, to write about or not write about anything. <laughs> well, it makes me sad. You want to talk about college football, and I'm the only sports show that like doesn't like refuses to talk <laughs> sports with people. But I, l- let me get into the book because I gotta say I I really liked it. But I was fascinated by when you talked about and in many other interviews you've done, you've talked about it being a little bit more of a freeing process that you weren't as maybe stressed about. This is maybe some of the nonfiction. Yeah, I don't know if I would say it was less stressful, but it was um, uh, my 
my subjective feelings about it are different. Whereas I look at nonfiction a little bit more like almost like bowling. Like you can be perfect in nonfiction. And there's like, these, that there, you know, that, 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 that there are, you know, there's certain things that if you, if the information is correct, if your point is well argued, if the writing is clear, you've done good nonfiction, but because fiction is so, I mean, even saying subjective almost is, is, is not far enough because it, it can literally be anything. You know, you, you can do, you can, you can kind of make the way you deliver that information be in any form you want. I mean, much less about the ideas. So it was a more enjoyable process. Like it felt legitimately creative. I guess maybe that's the best way to say it. Like all writing is creative, but starting with like a blank computer you know, and then deciding, <laughs> well, I'm going to just make a story with from about people who don't exist that just this all in my mind you know i that that was fun i mean it did not feel like work i heard you on bill simmons podcast recently talking about the the mixed feelings you have about being so out there in media and people know your voice and maybe they hear your voice when you are when they're reading one of your essays or one of your articles now do you feel like this might be like this collection of short fiction might be in a little bit of an antidote to that? Because I was very conscious of whether I was hearing your voice or not having just heard you do that interview. And I only heard you like two or three times. So I wonder, like, just from your perspective, do you feel as though writing fiction helps you just, you know, give you a little bit more of that blank slate with your readers to sort of start where you want them to start as opposed to them coming in with a predisposed tone, voice, sensibility that they might know you from your nonfiction work? Well, the short answer is yes. <laughs> the long answer <laughs> is I don't like I, I I don't know. If it, I mean, I appreciate you saying that, it, but it doesn't seem as though to me like um, that I can get out of this sort of self-built box either that were that <laughs> that it is it is to my uh, commercial benefit for sure that people have an identification with who I am how I sound and that my writing has enough of a voice that they can take my speaking voice and almost inject it right in to those paragraphs I think that people may feel <sighs> they have a closer relationship to me than they normally would with other writers. Um, and that like the, the sound of my voice, but maybe the way I talk. Um, and yet I, I, like I said, in that Simmons podcast, like it, it, I do feel like there's an, like an aesthetic or artistic detriment to that. Like it, it, it would, it, uh, many people who have reviewed this book or my two novels that I wrote, have said, well, all the characters talk exactly like him. And I was like, I, I, I really do think to a degree they're projecting that into the story. Yeah. They, they, they can't get around this, this idea that they know what I sound like. So they hear me saying it. Um, although at the same time, I must concede, I fucking wrote the things. They probably do sound like <laughs> me. I mean, it's like, I mean, it's like, I, I don't, I, 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 I my goal with this isn't to be, I don't know. This is kind of antithetical to how you're supposed to talk about fiction, but you know, there'll be people who will like 
they'll read a novel or they'll read fiction and they'll say like, oh, I just disappeared into the book. It was like a different reality. I can't have that experience. Like I've, I, I never think I'm actually in Narnia when I'm reading a book. Right, like, it right. doesn't, like I always know that this is a, a thing where, where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm consuming the story on the page and recreating it in my mind. I, I, so I don't, I don't care so much for that kind of immersive magical thing. I, it's not how I operate. Like I'm interested in writing about ideas and there were some ideas that I felt I could approach most effectively in a fictional context, but that's, you know, and, and I want the stories to be entertaining and fun to read and I want them to be interesting. And that's kind of, that's sort of how I look at it. Like, a um, I, I'm not a, I, I think I probably think less about the craft of writing than most writers. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, well, if uh, it makes it makes you, I don't know how you'd react. I, I did hear you on, on things like truth about food where it, you know, after a while I, I could, I was felt like I was kind of reading non nonfiction from you or <laughs> I did hear you as the, as the hitman and not that kind of person after a while. And I was like, well, that's interesting. Well, I mean, because there's just there's so many writers who I don't know their voice at all, and right. that is an interesting <laughs> thing, you know. And and I don't, I, 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 I'm curious how if somebody were to read this book and have absolutely no idea of who I am or any relationship to me, how how they would perceive that. Um, it just seems at this point, um, the type of person drawn to my work is the type of person who kind of keeps up on all the bullshit so they know who i am you know what i'm saying <laughs> it's like yeah, it. it's like they're like they're, they're, they're people who are pretty much who are pretty heavily engaged with with popular culture and and that they're they're um you know uh they are they're not very often the kind of person who is like i don't own any, i don't even own a tv i don't watch tv i just go to the library once a week and find a book i, I don't think that that person cares about me so the person <laughs> who does tends to know who i am and knows what I sound like. Yeah. It, it, one of the narratives, I mean, talk about um, it, it kind of riffing off that uh, idea of coming in with certain expectations. One of the narratives I kept seeing about the book was like people comparing it to Twilight Zone, Black Mirror. And there are certainly fantastical elements uh, about many of the stories. And yet I, I had to kind of retrain my brain not to go into everything, just sort of like waiting for a twist or like thinking you know, something fantastical was going to happen. I mean, the best example of this was in how can this be the place where I just kind of, after a certain point was like, just follow this guy along. Don't expect him to tap someone on the shoulder. And he's like in another dimension in the bar and it's his alternate self or whatever. <laughs> and I, I do wonder yeah, yeah, did, yeah. When, when you're out there talking to people about the book, do you reach a certain point? Cause you know, you're, you're at a point in your career where you're going to get a lot of press. You're going to get a lot of reviews where you can find the narrative around the book can start to maybe change expectations or the way that somebody's actually consuming it. Oh, absolutely. 100%. That's absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, the only, the only reviews that I really find interesting are reviews from other countries. <laughs> How like, so? what, it, what, well, when my, if, when my books get reviewed say in Germany, or France, or you know, uh, you know, a lot of places in like you know South America. You know, I, I, I'll see those reviews, and 
they are actually reviewing the text because <laughs> I because mean, they, they have no relationship to me outside of the book itself, you know. And if you review a book from another country, you're almost like, let's say I was going to review a book um, written by a Spanish author. Okay, um, I would be real hesitant to try to impose any ideas onto uh onto the work uh in fear that well this might be an example of of me misunderstanding spanish culture or or i'm making american assumptions about a text from a different place so when my book is is you know reviewed in other countries it doesn't happen as much they really just sort of they kind of i'm just sort of a like a an abstract american okay um Whereas in the United States, I don't know if I – I can't remember how long it has been that since I've gotten a review from a, a significant publication at least where it didn't seem like they were mostly reviewing the idea of me. That kind of seems <laughs> yeah. how it is. I mean yeah. it really does. Like it really does. Like in a, and, and that happened pretty, pretty early on, I would say by the third book. That's kind of how it's been. And here again, I'm not supposed to complain about this. I don't even know if I am complaining about it, um, but it's a, it's a weird feeling because, you know, it's uh, you, you write something like this, you know, any book, really, if you care at all, you're kind of putting yourself into the book. Yeah. So if someone's talking about the book, it already feels like to a degree they're reviewing you as a person. And then when the person is literally doing that, like, like when they're when they're actually talking about me and what they think I'm like and what they think that I'm motivated by or whatever, I mean that's it's kind of frustrating to a point where it's like I, I'm I'm I, I guess I still read it because I'm curious, but but it it's it's not a good experience no totally. like, like, it's, I don't I don't enjoy it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, within the stories themselves. There are a number of what I again. It's always hard because, but you seem like someone who just is going to surrender to the fact that when someone's reading your your work, they're going to bring their own subjective you know opinions about it. There are a number <clears> of <throat> narrators that you you and not everything's in the first person, but there are a number of stories where I look at the narrators and I say these are really unreliable narrators, and and I and I and I like <clears> that, and there. But it got me thinking about. There's got to be a real craft to that. And how do you establish doubt within the reader's mind without just being overly obvious about it and changing the entire tone? So when you're when you're crafting a, a, an unreliable narrative arc, are what is that process like for you and how do you balance the tension of keeping the reader on their toes? Well, you know, I I I I guess I I feel most people are unreliable. Like I I I, I view most I view most narrators as unreliable. Okay, like, like, it, and I don't mean just in the in the context of the story. I mean in the context of life, because right. I just, I, I, you know, so to me, um, crafting an unreliable narrator is, I don't know, I guess in a way easier. Not, not I mean, I'm not, I, I don't, I'm not doing it because it's easier, but it is easier than coming up with a truly reliable narrator because if you're using a truly reliable narrator you are essentially saying this is how i view the world that 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 the way i have put this reality together is a reflection of how either i think the world actually is or how i want the world to be Uh, my situations are more like 
this is how someone could see the world. It's mm-hmm. sometimes how I see the world. It's not always how I do. I mean, this is this is like why, you know, a lot of some people will say to me, it's like, if you want to write about these ideas, why didn't you just write essays? Like, why didn't you just write <laughs> essays about these things? And, you know, I, I could have done that. But the thing is, there are sometimes situations where I want to sort of talk about ideas that I am aware are problematic or contradictory to how I generally feel, but I know that if I just write them as essays, the whole thing is going to become this is a reflection of the author, that this is what, right. how the author feels. And and particularly the way the world is now, um, that has much more impact on how work is received than the ideas them, themselves like, mm-hmm. or, or the quality of the writing. So uh, – I just I just thought there was this was like there were situations where like I wanted to have people say things or or bring up ideas that wouldn't immediately shift the 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 perception of the of the piece into a thing about how I must feel or why do I feel this way or or is the fact that you know does my identity dictate how I view this like there are just some things I was like, well, what about this idea? How come no one says this? <laughs> you know, like, well, what, if, what, if, what if they did? You know, it's like, yeah. Let me, let me get into one that's one of my favorites. So execute again, which I'm sure is one that you get asked about a lot. But I have some specific nuances about this. So it's a, it's about a, a small Oklahoma, I believe, football team whose coach comes in, new coach, eccentric guy, weird personality, installs one play that's going to work uh, in the way he wants it to work every time. That's the only play they run. Now, this whole thing hinged on that play being something really interesting. And the way that you describe it, where you kind of finally land on what I think is, and forgive me, I might butcher it, like a combination, everyone's moving in a combination that, like between the foxtrot and the moonwalk, and it's like almost like water going down a drain, propelling the bodies forward. As soon as we got to that point, I was like all in, and I, I really could sort of start to really see all this stuff coming to life. And I was wondering... When you got a story like that that's really hinging on, okay, I've got to make this play work. H- how did that inspiration come to your mind, and where? How did you kind of land on that design? Because I think it was really interesting and original and, and well crafted. Okay, well, first of all, thank you. I appreciate you saying all that. <laughs> I love, I love the story. I wish, I honestly, I was a little pissed off because I wish it had been, I wish it had been its own novel. I was like, there's a lot to explore here. What's Chuck doing, burning this into like ten pages? Come on, man. You know what? It, it probably could have been actually. I mean, honestly, it's like this one story where it's like I wouldn't say I want that one back because I like the size that it is, but it probably could have been a, a much bigger thing, a longer thing. I mean, because the play came first. I right. mean, before yeah. any of any of like the meaning of the play or the meaning of this experience, that was all kind of the part that I had to put the work into. The idea of this play is just kind of like the kind of thing i think about it's like (laughs) is there is there a way that you could construct an offensive play that would always move the ball 2.7 or 2.6 or 2.5 yards every time no matter what you did defensively and if this happened do you basically break the game of football because you can just do this you know and I don't know. I guess sometimes I would just sort of be watching a football game, drinking and getting high and thinking about this. Like, what would it be like? If, what it would be like to run a football play that always worked in the same exact way. And I just, you know, I probably thought about that unconsciously 
I don't know, for a year? <laughs> I mean, right. I mean with, no, I, with no intention of, like, writing a story about it. Um, and then I just, you know, would kind of imagine how it would look. And then once I decided that I'm really doing this project, you know, this is like one of, you know, I'm doing this, I'm writing these stories that are going to be this kind of short length and they're going to be idea driven. I just started saying, well, what would be the meaning of this? Like, is there a larger philosophical or metaphysical meaning to this, you know, and what kind of person would think that was important? And how would that have impacted me had I been a high school student and I was in that experience? So that's probably like, that's how it kind of worked, but it really started with the play. Now, within the context of the story, I, you know, the play is just, I mean, the story could exist with no description of the play. And also I couldn't describe a play that actually works that way because it actually can't be done. So I had to find this way in between <laughs> of like, like of not just ignoring it, just saying it happened and also coming up with a way where it could happen in reality. And then I hope that I found that kind of the middle area between mm-hmm. that. It may sound like I'm nitpicking. I can assure you I'm not nitpicking. Do not take it that way. But it was more about just okay. like how an author, how their mind works. You start describing the games and how the trajectory goes from you know them getting destroyed to getting competitive to getting good. Now the like those scores, they're just numbers on the page. But then I started to look at those and I go, okay, how could the why did why did he land on these scores? Like it, it, in my head, I just picture everything now being like air raid where. Who, the coach is not spending any time on defense. Who knows if this team is everything going to be like a Texas Tech football game where, you know, it's like 85 to, you know, 66 or whatever. And then I started to think, like, how much of the world building do you have to do as the author to look at the look at the those sort of results? And like, are you kind of building in your head like how that would work? Because I, I did reach a point where I thought about it so much. I was like, well, these are small Oklahoma teams. I wonder if like at a certain point they've got they're playing a school with like players playing both ways and that would explain why they can't put points on the board uh you know because everyone's gassed or 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 maybe they're just on the field so long it's like Jim Kelly standing on the sideline while the Giants run the ball for you know hours straight and they can't get any rhythm so that, that's why I say I'm not nitpicking the scores I'm just wondering how much of that backstory do you invent in your head as the sort of creator of this world well I I would actually say quite a bit. Okay. Here, <laughs> yeah. okay, so the so okay, when you look at like the history of college football, for example, okay, the biggest blow in college football history is Georgia Tech and Cumberland College, from way back when, right? In the you know, wing teed. I think the score was two two twelve to nothing or something. Two, yeah. two, 220 to nothing or two hundred and twenty two to nothing or whatever. Um, so I went back and I, I read about or looked up the stats from that game. Okay, now, so I was trying to figure out, like, was, how did this work? Like, you know, how right. did they, you know, um, and then, you know, I just, uh, <laughs> I mean, this is, this is the kind of thing, I guess, you know, I complain about the internet so goddamn much. This is something about the internet. <laughs> I could never have done this without the internet. Like, so I looked up some, like, just high school games where the scores were insane. You know, where, like, a team's got beat, like, right. 96 to 6 or whatever, you know. So then I started counting possessions. And I was sort of like, well, how many possessions could you have in a game? Um, you know, like, uh, uh, like if 
if, if particularly early on, if the team running this, you know, quote unquote magic play or whatever was failing every time, they'd be going four and out over and over again. The team would be taking over the ball deep in their own territory because the team never punts. And I was trying to kind of put it together that way. Then I also had these other factors. I was like, well, okay. <sighs> Just. Uh, you know, my state growing up in North Dakota, we had like there's like a 40 point rule that in the second half, if one team was ahead by 40 points, uh, the game was called. And I was like, well, do you want to introduce like a slaughter rule situation? Well, that makes hmm. it kind of no fun because then the, the, the games, <laughs> the games aren't as the, the, the blowouts aren't as massive. You know, I wanted this. I wanted these scores to be really, you know, fat and the magnitude of them to be big. Um, the one there is. I'm hesitant to say this because it drives me crazy, but there is a there is sort of a mistake in that story, oh, which really? is that well, okay, so the play is the play always gains two point seven yards uh, every time, right? So on a two point conversion, if they put the ball on the two and the half, which they do in the NFL, uh, you would score that conversion every time. But a lot of high schools, including I think Oklahoma. They put the ball on the three. So you could score unlimited touchdowns, but you wouldn't get the conversion. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So sometimes I'm, I think sometimes I'm dealing with eights when I should be dealing with sixes, you know? Um, uh, (laughs) Yeah. And that, but that's fair. (laughs) Yeah. Then, you know, so because someone actually called me on some guy contacted me and he was like this this is, doesn't make sense because there's one score here that i can't do the math to get it to work out and i was like oh well you know uh, the defense was so psychologically devastated they jumped offside on one conversion and then they took a safety lane so that's like and he's like oh great thank you and i was like i didn't actually think of that when i was writing the story was that like at a book way. event or how did he get in touch with you to say this <laughs> twitter oh okay i think i thought he called you like he found your number and it's like hey man we got to talk about this. <laughs> uh, a couple more, uh, if you don't mind. Do you have a couple more minutes? I, I don't mean to be keeping oh, it sure, too. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah. Oh, no. I'm not, I, what I'm doing, I'm sitting on my deck and I'm watching this Monday night football game through my window. <laughs> okay. And it's so weird. It's so weird. Like, in, I mean, being in the Pacific time zone, it's so crazy. These games starting at, you know, so early. I just, oh, I know. I, I mean, I'm in Chicago. When I moved to Central Time from uh, from Ohio, it, it like broke my brain for uh, a couple of years. So oh, I, I get God, it. She's Central Time time is the best it is, for sports though. though football at noon and three the news is at six and ten i just thought it was perfect but okay anyways <laughs> <laughs> so a, a couple of stories to me are really in an interesting way diving into the way that we communicate and specifically the way that we can manipulate each other through communication i'm thinking of um you know the text barrages and in, in perfect type of friend or perfect kind of friend um, the, the the two magicians talking and the one always kind of has, well, I'll tell you what's going on, but I can never really tell you what's going on, but I need your opinion on it. How much are you intrigued by the sort of power dynamics within conversations? And, and was that sort of a conscious decision to explore some of those types of, um, you know, elements to the ways that we can control each other while we're just, you know, seemingly in good faith, just talking? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, I am interested in that. Um, I, the power dynamic is interesting because, you know, who has, who has the power in any conversation? Well, uh, I guess I am of the opinion it's whichever person is the least invested. 
Huh, like they have, if 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 you care if you care less, it doesn't matter what you say, right? Like if if a couple, if a man and a woman are in a relationship and they're having a fight, the person in power is the person who's willing to walk away from that relationship. The person who cares less, who loves, who needs the other person less. That's a dark way to look at it, but it is true. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's sort of like if you're, you know, if you if you're negotiating. Uh, a deal with your boss or if someone's trying to get you to do some deal you only really have leverage if you can say i don't care i don't need to do this and be telling the truth you know yeah so when i think about human interaction a lot of times you know like in the story you mentioned about the two magicians or whatever and the one guy uh is kind of controlling the conversation and the reason he's controlling the conversation is he is maybe arguably little less interested in what reality actually is yeah yeah (laughs) there's also a lot of stories where people seem to be having i use this word cautiously abnormal or maybe numb reactions to pretty fantastical situations And, and clearly the title uh story with the the puma in the in the in the plane is a good example and yet i on raising captivity for example i I thought it was a really interesting kind of metaphor for the way we interact with each other online. I, I see this like really threatening situation. Instead of doing anything about it, I just kind of go into my own little closed circle and trade conspiracy theories about what it means and debate it. And then I watch other people just follow on to the same problem. And, I, and, and it got me thinking about, do, do you feel like in this digital world that this was something this was a way for you to explore just sort of what is an appropriate reaction to you know a time traveler finding you or all this kind of crazy stuff are are we becoming just totally changed in how we absorb these things because the, we view the world so much differently than previous generations were able to okay well let me think got a lot of things to answer sorry here. i was First a rambling all, rambling no, question no 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 don't apologize it's a great question um I like your interpretation of the story raised in captivity, although that is not what it's about at all. And it's interesting, <laughs> it's, no, okay. but it's very, but it's interesting to me that you uh, interpret it as that. And this is part of what I guess is enjoyable about writing fiction to get back to your earlier question. If I had written, say, um, a spe- an essay, because that essay, sure. that story is really about the relationship I have had with class through the process of having been, I guess, I don't know, I hate to say it, but like pretty poor when I was young to being a middle-class person for a while to now being, I suppose, rich. And I feel like that, 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 that the extent change, that that change happened faster than I was psychologically ready to, to understand or emotionally Hmm. deal with. Okay. But your interpretation is fine. Whereas if I was doing an essay about that experience and you thought, I think this is really about the internet, it would mean I wrote a bad fucking essay, right? <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah. like it's not, if I wrote a, if I wrote an essay about socioeconomics and people thought it was about like, you know, digital language, like I failed, but in a short story, that's not the case. Um, right. Yeah. Well, because you'd, you'd know, you'd mentioned how like um, sort of it's, there's the, and their characters. I mean, I guess, 
because the stories are intended to be kind of comedic, I mean, where does comedy come from? It comes from like overreacting to small events and underreacting right. to major events. Yeah. So a lot of char- that happens a lot in this book where it's like where there's a character who is underreacting to something really insane or overreacting to something that's minor. Um, I mean, you know, the way people communicate online now is sort of morphing into the way people communicate. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I, I, I don't, I, I, for the longest time, you know, when, when, when say when, you know, we went from like Friendster to MySpace to Facebook and Twitter was new. Um, we, you know, there was off, there was this belief that I had, you know, it's like, well, there's the way people are in real life. And then this version of themselves that they kind of manufacture or construct for their online world. And I'm, uh, increasingly, uh, nervous that for a lot of people that is actually reverse that the mm. person they are online is actually who they are. And the person everywhere else you see in society is an edited version. And they're actually more comfortable sort of in this, um, kind of the simulated world where they can, where there aren't the same kind of consequences. I mean, you know, it's like, uh, the, the like the idea of cancel culture or whatever, it's like cancel culture cancels you from the internet. You right. know, it doesn't, it doesn't cancel you from life. Yeah. You know, and so uh, there's there's this other world that exists, and I've always, I mean, a few of these stories actually are about like that very thing: the idea that what if the reality of internet online life was moved into the physical world. Like, how would the physical world operate if it had the same sort of rules as an internet life did? I do think there's a lot, like you said, there's a lot of stories that are kind of towing that line and and playing with those types of themes. Um, and and, and, I, and I I really gravitate and respond to those. I will throw out you here two the two things I found the most unsettling in the book. And, and I mean, not like uh, I don't ever think this. It, it's just like the the the, the stories themselves. I, I got yes. unsettled, and the, for. Mm-hmm. Utterly different reasons. The the one was the way you describe the wolf's death <laughs> um, uh-huh. in Trial and Error. Like, where did you the, the visual thinking of that of of like, oh my gosh, like how did you come up with this? And I don't want to spoil it for people who might read. I'm not going to say what what happens. Where did that kind of idea come from? Oh, uh, I think that. The thing you're referring to, I think, is is part of uh, like uh, I think I could be wrong on this, but like I believe it's it's like myth or legend that kind of comes out of like the Inuit people, like yeah. kind of um, like young uh, like Native Americans from the above the uh, uh, above the Arctic Circle, like I like that. Uh, I had I had heard of that. I'd heard of this technique for killing. Oh, really? wolves. So that's a, that was grounded yes. in like a real thing. That's well, crazy. But I wouldn't. Say, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't say it's grounded in reality. I'm okay. saying that it's 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 grounded in a story oh, or a okay. myth that has been told. I don't know. I I, I mean I don't know if it would work. <laughs> you know. <laughs> but uh. But it was. Uh, I I don't. I you know. And to be honest, I have no idea where I heard that kind of legend or story. I mean, it's been. Year like twenty years ago, probably right. like twenty, I, you know, or or I was reading some weird book in college or something, <laughs> and I read, yeah, so, yeah. Well, the other one though was so grounded in reality, and that was the um, uh, never look at your phone, the 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 scene at the park mm. with with parents. 
And it was I was very cognizant having, you know, again, in the in, in the middle of this kind of series of like fantastical tales, um, you know, sort of a hard fiction where you're 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 taking a lot of creative turns. Something about just the anxiety of parenting at a park, I thought was very nicely captured. And and then the whole anxiety of like, I have to have this awkward you know, interaction and it's not really dangerous. It's probably no more dangerous than me looking away from my kid while they're on a jungle gym while I'm on my phone, but I'm going to be in my head about it. And it, to me, it was interesting. And I'm sure kind of for you as a writer that like you can stir that much dread one with through the very gory sort of descriptions of death and the other through just sort of everyday interactions. And, and do you have a preference for, I mean, maybe not cause you're exploring both, but is there something about either one of those scenarios that, that you're more drawn to in terms of the ability to sort of, um, you know, toy with your reader, but in completely different ways? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I do think that one thing that I have learned from being a parent is that, you know, uh, um, you worry like I'm a happier person now that I have kids because I worry less about so many things. I worry less about my career. I worry much less just about myself in general. Like you just you do a lot of the a lot of the insular sort of kind of solipsistic thinking that I think uh, very often is just like a typical characterization of someone who is a writer or any kind of creative person, you, you got to think about yourself, you know, to, to, in order to do what you do. And then you have a kid and that changes. Part of the change, though, is that your anxiety and your worry fully surrounds the kid, the kid's yeah. life and how the kid is. So, I mean, you know, um, uh, when I'm with my children, you know, at a park or in public or something, you know, uh, uh, on, on one hand, I'm just kind of spaced out. And another hand, I'm kind of, you know, enjoying the time being with them. But then there's this third hand, I guess, where it's like. <laughs> I hope they don't die. Like, yeah, like, like, right. like, like the, like this, the idea of like, you know, anytime you see your kid climbing something, you know, it's like, you're excited because they're showing, you know, some initiative and like, they're, they're getting physically stronger and they're, they're having an adventure. And then part of you is always like, what if they fall and I'm going to watch my kid die right now? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like anybody who's had a baby, like I, I, I sent you have kids, right? Yeah. Two kids. Six and, six yeah, and two. Know, yeah. Yeah. See, mine are, are five and three. And, you know, when you, especially this happens less, of course, with the second kid, but with that first kid, it's like the, when he's a, when the kid is very young, like, you know, a month or two old, you know, it's like, I got to get into sleep. I want to get into sleep. I want to get into sleep. Please go to sleep. Please stop crying. Please go to sleep. They do when you lay him in the crib and then you stare at the baby to make sure it's breathing. Oh yeah. <laughs> Cause you think it's going to die. You know, it's like, so like that, that has, that has kind of opened up this whole kind of world of sort of thought that I have now about, you know, uh, this different kind of fear that isn't a fear about like, Oh, you know, writing or how this book is received or does this girl like me or, you know, to to this, this life of this person, the situation in that story, it's like, that would kind of have like situations very similar to the beginning of that story have happened to me. Where like one time I was at a park, and a, a woman came up to me and she's like, there's some weirdo in this park. And I was like, <laughs> and I was like, well, I was like, well, okay, thanks for telling me. And she's like, you got to do something. You're like the only guy here. And I kind of <laughs> look around and I am, I'm the only guy at the park. And that also brings up these other questions. It's like, and now my, like, is this, is right, this, right. yeah, it's like, there's the combination of like, I, I don't, I want to be progressive about this, but I also want to be sort of supportive. You know? And then I went and look, I went looking for the weirdo. Right. 
and I never found it, you know? So I, I, there was no, as far as I could tell, the weirdo was never there, but <laughs> I then, but on my way back to my kid, then I started thinking about like, well, what if he would have been, what would have happened? You yeah. know? And then that was like the genesis of that story, walking away from something that didn't happen and imagine what it would be like if it did. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, it does capture that sort of ex, ex, existential dread that parents have in terms of just, I, I'm, I'm like you. And then I, all I want to do when I'm at the park like that is like talk to people about it, but then they're going to think you're the weirdest, most morbid person ever and be like, dude, <laughs> they're just at a park. Like, uh, I had this debate uh, with some friends last year. I found when you host a podcast, you think a lot more about um, the nature of podcasts. And we were talking about like all-time great podcast guests, and you were very high on the list. And at the time, the the rationale for it would have been all the things that you would have found so boring. Like, oh, he can talk about a lot of different stuff. He does podcasts a lot. Like, he, you know. But then I heard it in prepping for this, I heard an interview with you. That I and you said something that I think zeroes in on why I think you're a really good podcast guest. Let me float this by you. You said at at some point you were doing a bar trivia team, and people didn't like you being on their team because you even you guessing sounded like you had a declarative opinion about it. And I started thinking that's why Chuck works on podcasts because even if someone throws something at you and you don't really. You're just kind of working it out as you go. It does really sound like you've been sitting there thinking about that for like two years. And then the the interview doesn't have that meandering sort of two people back and forth. It does tend to stay on track in terms of propelling forward. So I wanted to get your take on whether you thought that was a fair assessment or if I'm just totally full of shit on this. Oh, well, I mean, you absolutely could be. I can't really gauge whether or not that. First of all, I can't really gauge if I'm even – like you saying, I'm a good podcast guest. That's real nice of you. I mean, I, of course, I'm not listening to myself. I'm not right. going back and listening to my <laughs> um, The thing about the bar trivia thing is totally true, though. We had this bar trivia team, and it was a pretty good bar trivia team. It was a lot of people I, I worked with at Spin. And uh, we'd go to this Irish bar in New York, and we'd play trivia. But the, the, the captain of our team, she would sometimes get very mad at me because – she would claim that when there'd be a question no one knew, my guess would suggest I was right. Like it would be like like somebody would say like who the question would be, um, um, you know, uh, uh, besides John McEnroe, how who what left-handed tennis player has <laughs> won the most, uh, you know, the most uh, Grand Slams or whatever? And I would I, I would just say a name, right? But the way I would say. Even if you know, I would, I would just say a name, and then they would, they, they would, she would guess it. And she was like, "We didn't even talk about it. Maybe somebody else knew." And I was like, "Well, so what am I supposed to do? Only talk if I know? I thought we're trying to figure this out." <laughs> um, but uh, you know, so so I guess maybe it does seem on a podcast if someone asks me a question and I don't know the answer, which is most questions. I guess though, so if I respond to it in a way that makes it seem like I do know the answer, well, that would make it seem <laughs> as though the podcast was like picked me to be on for the right reasons, you know? Yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I will. Like I said, it was just one of those things where I remember thinking about it and then I heard, I was, I heard you do that, that, that take. And I was like, I, yeah, that does kind of sum up the way he sounds on like some of those, some of those shows. Okay. So let me uh, close with this. Um, so my show is the only show really that is devoted entirely to like what people within sports like beyond sports. So I've spent more time, I think, than anybody in history looking at like athletes, musical careers and movies and that kind of stuff. With that am, in am mind. I misremembering, like, am, I, am I misremembering this or was it when I was on your podcast before? Did we talk about the Grateful Dead? 
We did, yeah, a little bit. I'm, I, yeah, it's interesting. But, I'm interested in your memory because we we did an entire. It was basically I I, I had you on because I I wanted to only talk to you about um one of the essays that was in ten that was uh, three men weave the st- story that kind of launched Grantland. Uh-huh, and we uh-huh. went like forty minutes on that, and then we started talking about uh greatest American band and <laughs> and that kind of stuff. Yes. So let me let me ask you about this. In some cases, I feel like people make an argument that like, hey, Bo Jackson was a historically great athlete. Because he was so, he's a Heisman Trophy winner in football, and he was an MLB All Star MVP in baseball. He was so good in both sports that even though he may not have been Hall of Fame worthy in both sports, we should maybe elevate him to the pantheon of Hall of Fame. So, with that in mind, can I make the argument to you that we should really be starting to have the conversation about Shaquille O'Neal going into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? <laughs> because. They're letting in basically. I mean, first of all, we can debate the merits of the Rock and Roll Fame. I, I think you and I probably doubt that there are too many merits to even really have. But can we say that he at, at one point he was the world's greatest NBA basketball player, and he was a you know I believe one of his albums went platinum or at least gold. He was a pretty well known hip hop recording artist who's done music with everyone from members of the Wu Tang Clan to Ice Cube to whatever else. Can we say that he was so good in basketball that eventually we might have to be like, well, no one else has who has ever been number one in something else noteworthy has ever also done this at this competent of a level. So sure, go ahead and put Shaq, uh, put him on the Hall of Fame. Uh, I'd say no. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate you because, even even entertaining well, this ridiculous question of mine. Well, I mean, no. I mean, okay. So like, uh, I you know, I, I I brought this up before. There was a. Like uh, there was a, a a sports century on Troy Aikman. Did you happen to see that? No, I, okay. I wish I had. Well, okay, so there's a sports there's a sports century on Troy Aikman, or no, it's not a sports century. It's a uh uh the the a football life. Oh, on the okay, that makes more sense. Circuit. Okay, so there's a football life on Troy Aikman. Okay, now do you know outside of football the other thing that Troy Aikman was fantastic at? In high school. It's got to be country music, right? Nope. Guess again. Oh, acting? I'll give you one more guess. Okay. Uh, now I'm at the bar trivia, and everyone's mad at me because I'm, like, throwing shit out there. Uh, chess? <laughs> I don't know. I'm out of ideas. Well, typing. Like He used to go to these typing competitions. He can type, like, 98 words a minute as a freshman <laughs> in high school. His, his, he had a friend who wanted to take typing because there were a lot of girls in the class. He took the class with him, and he was this dominant teenage <laughs> typist, okay? Now, he was also, you know, uh, well, you know a, a, a Hall of Fame quarterback. So do we put him in the secretary's hall of fame? I don't think so. You know, it's like you can you can do something else and you can do it well. It doesn't necessarily mean that that uh, you know that 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 in orchestra with your other thing that you know like like Shaq's rapping does not like approach Public Enemy because he was dominant in the post. <laughs> you know, it's like like it doesn't like that thing. Bo Jackson is a little different, I think, because – well, very different actually. But because I think the belief is that if Bo Jackson had done just football or just baseball, he would have made the Hall of Fame in each sport. Well, you know? But, but like, can I, we say then if Shaq had devoted his you know, significant resources to just going all in on his musical career, could he have elevated <sighs> up 
And I know it's a ridiculous question. I mean, but there are other people I've. I mean, I've had an no, Alexi well, Lawless no, on the show to talk about of, his albums. You know, his his music career. He's got he's got more albums than Led Zeppelin at this point. It's like some of these guys just keep at this. Thing. It, it's kind of interesting because if you say if Shaq had completely, like, let's say Shaq devotes his life to hip hop. Okay, so the world of hip hop then has a seven foot. 300 pound rapper right Right. like that would have been by far enough justification for like spin when i was there to do a story on a guy if there was a rapper who was that big and that's all it was you know he didn't play sports you know so he would have gotten coverage as a hip-hop artist simply because of his size he had kind of a like you know it's like how much consequence do we put on Will Smith's rapping career? You know what I'm saying? That's it's a like, good parallel. like he had a musical career. It's sort of like it's not a, um, it wasn't formally inventive. I mean, it was it was almost like a an easy listening version of hip hop in a way. It's almost for kids. So you know, I it would it would have had to have been that if that Shaq dedicated his life. This is so weird. <laughs> dedicated his life yeah. to rap, and um. Really, you know, maybe went like like if, if he would have maybe taken different influences, you know, if he would have like if, if if Shaq becomes a gangster rapper, that's an intimidating presence. Right. Yeah. Like that's that's somebody, you know, like if he's on death row records, like Shaq is very scary. So um, uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess my 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 short answer was no. My long answer is no. But it wasn't a terrible question. <laughs> OK, well, that's good. Yo, Shaq. And we are back. In the sports world, athletes, coaches, media, they all do things that interest them, and then we tell them, stop being interesting. Go back to watching game film. You're being a locker room distraction. And I'm here to say, that's ridiculous. Life is just work and the things that distract us from work. So on this show, we celebrate distractions every week by telling you what's been distracting me. Look, the It movie, tearing it up in September, making a lot of money, getting a lot of people talking... But I've been thinking a lot more about this other Stephen King adaptation, Dr. Sleep. Now, this was a book that was based on The Shining, that Danny Torrance grew up. Here was the next chapter of The Shining saga, written by Stephen King. And when I heard it was being turned into a movie, I said, eh, you know, whatever. (laughs) I mean, I'm literally at my home office. I'm looking at a copy of The Shining on one of my bookshelves. An important book in my maturation as a reader. I read it in middle school, loved it, still super scared by the hedge animals. Hedge animals will always be better than the hedge maze in Stanley Kubrick's version. I'm just telling you. Now, don't judge that. Don't judge that by the revised TV movie version with the dude from Wings. Those hedge animals were bunk. In my head as a six year, or sixth grader, sorry, in my head as a sixth or seventh grader, that shit was crazy scary. But here, here's what I want to break down about this movie. Stephen King hated The Shining, the movie. He hated it. They made an entire movie about Stephen King hating The Shining, the movie, like a year and a half ago. Becky Sauerbrunn came on and talked to me about it. Ready Player One had an entire arc about how Stephen King hated what Kubrick did to The Shining. And they've made documentaries about that, Room 237. They've done a bunch of other stuff about that. Cool. Cool beans. It's out there. So when when someone gets the book rights to turn into the movie of Dr. Sleep, what's the first thing they do? 
they decide aesthetically we need to link this to the movie <laughs> The Shining. And so when I watch the trailer and I'm hearing Kubrick's music, I'm seeing the Kubrick images, I'm seeing everything from the movie drawn out into the sequel, connected to the sequel. I I literally was like, wait. So they're going to take the author who hated the movie version of his book, who wrote a second book, probably largely to be like, fuck off, I own this story, not Kubrick. I'm going to expand it and do something else that, that's different with it. And then buy the rights to that and then re- instantly connect it back to The Shining. As a marketer, look, I get it. That's how you're going to make your money. People love that movie. I like that movie. It's fine. It's great. It's whatever. Um, better probably in a theater setting, watching it with Rising Dread than just like catching it on cable. But it's 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 an clearly an iconic movie. I get I cannot reconcile in my head how to work out this like beef <laughs> between the creators and the artist intent and everything else. I almost wonder. Are we going to have to have a reboot to Dr. Sleep that's eventually more faithful to whatever the King version in his head that he has? And that, that, doesn't that need to be something made by like Mick Garris <laughs> in 10 years and put on like, you know, CBS in the daytime? I, I don't know. I will say this. Stephen King, I, I don't know if this is the movie that you wanted to get made, but if it is, uh, a more power to you. If it's not, call me. We'll remake it in a few years and just, uh, you know and close the book on uh, on this chapter of uh, movies made out of books. Okay, so that's our show for this week. Chuck Klosterman, great to have him back on. I had a lot of fun talking to him about writing these uh, collections of short stories. It's called Raising Captivity. Go buy it. Go check it out. I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, maybe when Chuck does something down the line, we'll have him back on the show if, if the show is still even existing. And uh, more stuff to come. Lots more shows uh, coming forward. Taped a bunch. Actually canned a number of them here in September. So uh, refresh that feed. Stay tuned. Email me, justnotsports at gmail.com. Find me on Twitter. Find me on Instagram, at justnotsports for both. If you want to connect and in the immortal words of potentially Hall of Fame, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee Shaquille O'Neal, booty rappers, stay booty. <laughs>